NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. So welcome once again to The Right Time. It's a special collaboration between children's and young adult authors and incredible teachers from the National Writing Project. Our classrooms come alive and they thrive because we have brilliant thought-provoking texts put out by the authors that we invite to the show. It's these books that allow stellar educators to weave magic and knowledge into all of our classrooms. I'm Brian Ripley Crandall and I'm proud to say The Right Time has surpassed its first birthday and we are still going strong. Uh, the sun is shining on the East Coast. Actually, it's getting ready to set. Tanya, how are you doing out West? Hi, Brian. I'm great, thanks. The sun is also shining. It's not often shining where you are and where I am, but it is today. And happy one-year celebration to you, too. I can't believe we've been doing this for the last year. The Right Time has rekindled hope and possibilities across our network, especially in the way we think about novels and the stories we share. When Trevor Ingerson of Penguin Random House suggested today's guest, Joseph Bruchak, and I reached out to you, your first response was, we need to get a teacher from Kelly Sassy's work in North Dakota, the Red River Valley Writing Project. Without missing a beat, she reached out to Caitlin Johnson, now Dr. Caitlin Johnson. Congratulations, Caitlin. Thank you. To represent the network, we're thrilled to have both Caitlin and Joseph with us this evening. Welcome to the show, everyone. It's pretty awesome, too, because believe it or not, the network, this is a National Writing, writing Project story. Kelly Sassy from North Dakota was actually just at my house with her son because her son graduated from Wesleyan in, in Connecticut. And now my son and her son and she are on the beach, which is pretty awesome. And we have um, Caitlin Johnson with us. This is just pretty incredible. So I'm going to just begin um, tonight's introduction as I grew up in New York and I'm a few miles southeast of Oneida Lake, um, as a child, I knew of the six nations of the Iroquois, the Onondaga, Oneida, Seneca, Tuscarora, Mohawk, and Cayuga, but they didn't really teach that in school as much as I learned it on my own. And then when I was a teacher in Louisville, Kentucky, um, there I taught high school English um, in a city building where the Shawnee and Chickasaw once benefited from the lands along the Ohio River. It was then I found Keepers of the Earth. I was earning a degree with the Kentucky Institute for Environmental Education and Sustainability, and that book became a pedagogical playbook in my classroom. And now, today, I'm living north of the Long Island Sound, where the Golden Hill Pogasuck tribe once nurtured the Connecticut coastline from New Haven to Westport. This is my way to say I'm so honored to have Joseph Bushak with us. His work, his wisdom, and, and this week, this life, I, when I thoroughly read, I'm going to hold it up now, Res Dogs, I just feel like everything's coming to this point. Um, and I'm look, I really am looking forward to the wisdom that's going to come from the conversation between Joseph and Caitlin. And I, I told everyone in the pre-interview, I also now have a dog because I was inspired by Res, dog, Res Dogs that I needed another dog. And I went out Saturday and got one. So here's my official introduction. For over 40 years, Joseph Bruchak has been creating literature and music that reflect his indigenous heritage and traditions. He's a proud, and I'm going to torture this and I apologize, he is a proud Nulhegan Abenaki citizen and respected elder among his people. He's the author of more than 120 books for children and adults. His best-selling Bookkeepers of the Earth, Native American Stories and Environmental Activities for Children series, with its remarkable integration of science and folklore, continue 
to receive critical acclaim and to be used in classrooms throughout the country. We're glad to have him on the show. Yes, we sure are. And Brian, I grew up and lived for much of my life in Maine, which is the home of four Maine Indian tribes, the Maliseet, Mi'kmaq, Penobscot, and Passamaquoddy, known collectively as the Wabanaki or people of the Donland. And now I live in California on, um, on previously Ohlone land and um, Ohlone land, sorry. And I have, since my daughter's been in third grade, I've lived here on land that was um, that is of the Ohlone people. And I spent a lot of time with her and her youth learning about the Ohlone people, but to come back to uh, uh, Joseph's work and hear about Eastern um, tribes was so lovely. And to hear words that I knew from my childhood was so lovely for me, I've really enjoyed getting to know this work. And I loved the book, Res Dogs. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, to get to it now, I'm the only person keeping us from this great conversation. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Caitlin Johnson of the Red River Valley Writing Project. Dr. Caitlin Johnson is an enrolled member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. She currently works as an English language arts teacher at Dakota High School, formerly Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson High School, with Fargo Public Schools. Dr. Johnson is dedicated to helping kids like her who struggled for various reasons in traditional classroom. After graduating from an alternative high school on her own reservation, she's an alternative education teacher that has now come for a full circle. Caitlin, we're proud that you're with us and we look forward to the writing prompts and interview to come. We wish for you both a wonderful conversation. Caitlin, maybe you could start us off with a writing invitation. Okay, so I thought I'd start us off with um, just kind of a simple question of how have stories influenced your life experience and using the guiding questions of how have these stories influenced how you address a situation or reflect on it? And were you able to make informed choices as a result of knowing stories? And I wanted to start on that just because growing up on a Native American reservation, I grew up with a lot of stories <laughs> from my elders mm -hmm. and I always reflected on those throughout my life. Um, and I think that's really directly related to what um, Joseph Grushek's um, stories have uh, just because I grew up with um, his books and um, I'm kind of fangirling a little bit. I, it's just an honor to kind of be able to um, have a conversation with him just because I, I grew up with his stories. My mom gave me my first book of his when I was just a young girl. And I just fell in love with the stories and um, it led to him being cited in my dissertation. So um, I'm just so honored to be part of this conversation. That's awesome. Well, Caitlin and Joseph, Brian and I are gonna disappear yeah. now and another we will leave you- Another perfect match, another perfect match. We'll see you, have a good conversation. We'll leave you to that conversation. So I thought we'd start off just kind of, um, related to that that prompt um, I myself grew up with um, oral storytelling and some of my fondest memories growing up were sitting in front of my grandma's rocking chair especially during the winter months because that's when we told uh, oral narratives and just kind of learning the stories of our tribe and of our family and um, so I really connected with your character in Res Dogs just because she had that strong connection with her own grandparents and that storytelling was a strong theme. Um, 
So it was just kind of a traditional way of like um, sharing those historical and family values in tribes among generations. So I know there's somewhat of a resistance from transitioning oral storytelling to written text. And I was just kind of wondering, what are some of the factors that you consider um, when you're transitioning your own stories to written text? First, I have to say bonjour, hello. And I also have to say congratulations on getting your doctorate. We, need, you. we need more people like yourself. Thank you so much, Olioni. I think that one, one thing I discovered throughout my life is that we all have two ears and only one mouth. We need to listen twice as much as we talk. And I found wherever I go, that if I listen closely, elders are always telling me stories. And that is something which I continue to do myself and which will continue long beyond the time when we're writing. Uh, people were worried. I remember 50 and 60 years ago, people were telling me, are you sure you should write these things down? And my feeling was that they needed to be written down for a couple of reasons. One, to broaden our audience because these stories are stories for human beings, not just, of course, they're especially our stories, but they're also human stories, which are meant to teach lessons that everyone needs. And secondly, many of my elders were getting on in years and were concerned that these stories would not be told after they passed on. I cannot tell you how many times someone would come up to me, uh, Dewa Santa, who is a, a clan mother, the Eel clan, the Onondaga nation, Alice Papineau. She said, Joseph, I'm going to tell you this story and I want you to remember it because my children are not listening to it. And after I've gone, I want you to tell it back to them. <laughs> and uh, that same thing happened to me, I, I think maybe a dozen different occasions over the last 50 years that, that would occur to me. And I think that was one thing that gave me the courage and the conviction that these stories needed to be written down, needed to be recorded. I also have to say that I've, I'm very respectful of the oral tradition. There are many stories that I know that I never tell out of context, that I never write down. Uh, I've been given these stories in some cases, not even for me to tell to anyone else. I'm supposed to carry this story with me and trust what it teaches me. So I honor that very strongly. I also honor uh, the seasonality of many of our stories. Many of them are only meant to be told between first frost and last frost. Or as uh, my friend, uh, Kevin Locke often, who's a wonderful Lakota storyteller, Kevin said, when you hear the thunder, that's the time to stop telling the stories. When the thunder mm -hmm. comes in the springtime, storytelling stops. And uh, another good friend of mine, Shanto Begay, and a wonderful Navajo illustrator and writer himself, we were doing a program together on Zoom. And he said, oh, the first snowfall has just fallen. So now we can tell the stories about the small animals. <laughs> and so it's continuing on to this day, despite the fact we have writing and books, we often us who are writers and illustrators are honoring those traditions as well. And I think they work well together and I'm not worried. By the way, also, there are a lot of stories that I know that I have not written down because I think they're meant to remain oral stories. And I think that's something also that we need to keep in mind. Every story in the book, Res Dogs, is a story that in one form or another has been written down or recorded before me by other uh, Wabanaki or Abenaki people, Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, Maliseet, Mi'kmaq, Western Abenaki. And uh, I'm, uh, I also have a PhD in comparative literature, so I do a lot of research in the written archive. 
and as well as hearing things. So many of the stories I tell, I can point out three or four different versions that were collected, usually inaccurately. <laughs> and then I could turn to the version that I heard told me orally, often by someone who said, Joseph, this story has been written down and they didn't get it right. So <laughs> I'm gonna tell it to you how it should be told. Um, long answer to a short question. No, I, I love that response just because that was something that was brought up in my dissertation where it was like, okay, do I use the oral narrative I can cite because it's written down or do I use the oral narrative that was provided to me in interview? So obviously I kind of went with the oral narrative that was provided to me in interview because that was my tribal elder, but it was there was no way of knowing for sure. So you just kind of made me feel a lot better about going that route just because it was like, well, I know I can't cite this, but this is a way of honoring my elders and my tribe. Um, so I really love that response. Um, I know so that uh, one thing has happened to me is I've had occasion to use the oral tradition in defense of our people and our culture. I actually was called upon to uh, testify in our fish-in trials more than 20 years ago. And I testified as a storyteller telling traditional stories that spoke to our long lasting connection and residence on the land that they said we did not connect to. I know, uh, like from my experience in the classroom, I, I know a ton of students that are just amazing, amazing storytellers um, in the oral sense. But then when they get in front of a computer or they have a pen and pencil, uh, paper and pencil in front of them, they kind of freeze. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell me about your writing process and how you kind of, um, what type of strategies and methods you use just to kind of better help the students that might be the better oral narrative storytellers um, and might get a little hesitant to write it down? I have two answers for that. The first one is when I began writing, I literally began dictating to myself. I didn't worry about what I was writing. I just wrote whatever came into my head. And one of my friends and mentors, a poet named William Stafford, once told me that every morning he would get up and look out the window and whatever he saw out the window, he would start writing about just to get himself started. In fact, I once stayed at his house and he let me sleep in his study and use his typewriter. So I thought I'll do the same thing William Stafford does. I'll get up at dawn and I'll write a poem on his typewriter looking out the window. I got up at dawn, put paper in the typewriter and I could hear another typewriter going from the other room. He was already writing poems on his other typewriter and had written three before I even got up. So that idea of not stopping yourself, don't worry about what you write, just write whatever comes into your mind. It's not wrong, it's just what you're writing. That's a very important thing to recognize. A lot of people censor themselves before they put words on the page. They think, oh, this isn't gonna be good enough, Oh, I've got to do something else. Oh, look, I need to clean the window or whatever. And they'll do anything to keep from actually writing. Second part of my answer. Here is my new little friend. <laughs> I wrote the entirety of Res Dogs while on walks with my dog dictating chapters into my iPhone. So if you're good at talking and you have an iPhone and everybody does, then just talk your story into your iPhone, then transfer it into your computer or whatever device you have. And there it is on the page, your words. So that's been my writing process recently 
uh, literally using modern technology to connect to oral tradition. The beauty of modern technology. I know in ResDogs, um, and you kind of just mentioned this in the last question, um, there's a deep companionship between the humans and animals in the story. And I know in a lot of the storytelling that I grew up with, um, that's not uncommon to have a deep spiritual connection with animals. And I was wondering, do you have a dog or animal in your own life that inspired the dog in your story? Um, and did you kind of grow up with that same type of notion of storytelling where animals had a strong connection mm -hmm. with the humans? I have dogs, I've always had dogs. Uh, dogs are a big part of my life. And I don't think that we were meant to be without them in our traditional stories. As in the book, we say the dog was the one animal that wanted to be our companion and shows us. And uh, my two sons are very connected to the outdoors. My son, Jim, is an outdoor educator and teaches animal tracking. In fact, <laughs> here's a picture of Jim with one of his friends. That's an Alaskan timber wolf. And Jim will be out in Yellowstone and Glacier in a couple of weeks uh, tracking big carnivores and working on a book of his own about grizzly bears. And uh, the thing about animals is that they know more than we do. All of my life, I have learned things from animals just by not just observing them, but by copying them, learning from them, seeing what they do. We say the bear is... Uh, a doctor, because when a bear is sick, it knows what to eat. And often we have those same problems. If we have a headache, we chew on a, a willow twig, just as the bear does. It's got the same ingredient in it as uh, salicylic acid as you find in aspirin. So for me, throughout my life, animals have been my teachers. When I went to Cornell University, I majored first in wildlife conservation. So uh, then I switched into English after three years because I wanted to write as much as I wanted to study animals. By the way, I should mention, I didn't mention this earlier, the book Keepers of the Earth was cited at the start of this show. I am the co-author, my dear friend, Michael Cududo, who is a naturalist, lives in Vermont, was my co-author with the book. I would not have written it without Michael because he asked me if I'd like to write a book using traditional stories to teach about nature. And I said, no. Then a year later, he asked me a second time, I said, well, having thought it over, no. Then a year later, he asked me a third time, and I said, well, I guess you're really serious, aren't you? No. Then a year later, he asked the fourth time, but then we wrote the book. So a little bit of a traditional connection there. <laughs> you want to make sure you're doing the right thing. And uh, so teaching and learning about animals, animals as teachers, is something I have uh, known all my life. And my grandparents, who raised me, were very close to animals, and I had animals around me all the time. That was one thing I really connected with um, on another basis with with res dogs was not only did I grow up with that storytelling, but more recently I'm learning more about our connection to dogs um, in the last year. I got a I got a puppy last year at the start of the pandemic for my dog or for my son. Um, we got a beagle named Molly. Um, and I was told beagles were amazing with kids with autism. I'm an autism mom. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to take a chance. We're going to adopt this puppy. And the fact that she had no formal training whatsoever to calm a child that's starting to have a meltdown and she naturally does it was just amazing to me. 
I was just like, wow, this, I mean, I never knew an animal could just naturally do that. And then I remember talking to a tribal elder and then that's when I had heard that like, the dog chooses you. It's not the other way around. Um, the dog is obviously a good fit for your family because she chose your family. And I, I just thought that was so beautiful. I had never heard that before. So when I was reading Res Dogs, I was like, wow, this is so true. And it's not just our tribe that believes this, this is kind of universal. And I just thought that was amazing. Um, so I, I really appreciated that. It's just the fact that, you know, like when, when you're a native student or person reading stories from other native people, it's just, you have that deep connection with the characters. And I really felt that reading Res Dogs, especially just because it was like, wow, I grew up with this. Wow, I'm, I'm just now learning this or seeing different connections. Just, um, it was really eye-opening for me. Um, and I also know that like, um, especially in the book that I cited in my dissertation, Our Stories Remember, I absolutely love that book, by the way. I think it's very, um, very articulate. Um, you expressed that there was always a close relationship between tribal elders and our youth. Um, and you demonstrate that through the cycle of life. And um, I was wondering, um, what strategies do you think we could use to teach our youth to be the next generation of storytellers? Because as you say, new storytellers are born every single day. Um, and how can we protect our stories for future generations? Well, one thing I always do is I turn to, you know, visual aids. Here's one of my drums. And I talk about, by using this drum, a teaching given me by Harold Tantaquidgen, who was a Mohegan elder and the founder with his sister Gladys of the Mohegan Indian Museum in Uncasville, Connecticut. And Howard had on the wall of his museum across with four quadrants. And those four quadrants stood for the path that we need to take as learners and as livers and as human beings and as storytellers and writers. The first, we have to listen. Open your ears and listen. Two ears, one mouth, listen twice as much as you talk. Listening. Second, observe using your two eyes, those two eyes that can see things in depth, but also that can look within into the eye of the heart, as my Lakota friends put it. Then the third thing is to remember, because when you remember what you've seen and heard, it becomes part of you and is useful for you and others. Then the fourth step, just where the elders are, is to share, because when they share, that circle keeps going around. And I always uh, tell young people, I, my son Jesse and I do workshops together. We just finished doing a two month long residency at the uh, Seneca Salamanca Indian schools in Western New York. And we, we talk about those four roots, those four things we all need to do to listen, to observe, to remember, and to share. Then we talked about four other roots, which are ancestry, which is very powerful. So many things we find there, songs, stories, history, family. Our family has so many stories and so many things to teach us. The place we live, every place is full of power. And fourth, our own personal experience on that journey. And I'll tell you, it's so easy to get kids inspired when you start talking in those terms. And for example, when I talk about place, I say, you know, one thing that happens in places is ghost stories. And I tell them a ghost story. 
Do you know a reservation community where there's no ghost stories? I do not. <laughs> and man, some of the stories these Seneca kids came up with over the last two months are just amazing. So to me, I think it's a question of just letting kids know they already have so much within them. They just have to be prepared to draw it out and to listen, to observe, to remember, and then they're the ones to share. I, I really like how you're, you're saying just draw it out because a lot of my students, they have the ability, but they just don't see it in themselves. And it's just kind of reminding them, you can do this. You just told me the story about what happened at home or you're, you told me what happened to you um, in this situation. And um, they often don't see that as storytelling. They're just like, well, I was just telling you about my day or I was just telling you what happened. And they don't see that as a story. And it's like, yeah, that in itself is a story. And obviously it was important to you because you wouldn't have shared it otherwise. Um, so I, I appreciate that, that response. Um, and I know I myself, I grew up with a lot of stories um, about like stories that portrayed the good Indian as it's called um, in contemporary literature um, that kind of like willingly, uh, the people that were willingly colonized like um, Pocahontas and Geronimo and I know a lot of your books were inspired by indigenous history and you retold them through your own stories, what, such as Peacemaker, which is very inspired by the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, do you believe it's important for indigenous authors to tell these stories? And do you think it as a means of truth telling and decolonization? I'll give you a good example, I think of that. There was a book written many years ago uh, called Northwest Passage by a man named Kenneth Roberts. And in it, the Abenaki people of the village of Odenak are portrayed as the bloody St. Francis Indians who are wiped out by Rogers Green Berets. And uh, a dear friend of mine, Atien Lolo, Stephen Laurent, was an Abenaki elder. And Stephen is cited in the book as one of the sources of information. And Stephen said to me, oh, Joseph, I wish that he had listened to me more closely. <laughs> he didn't hear what I said. So I decided that I was going to write about that same experience, that Rogers raid of 1759. And I wrote a book called The Winter People and told it from our point of view, using our oral traditions and our stories. And uh, I think that it was much more accurate because I didn't just use our story. I also took a look at everything in history, tried to write a balanced story, but bring our perspective in as well. I think that's one thing that a native writer can do. She can look at a story and she can see it from within. Uh, she can be like my friend Louise Erdrich, you know, who uh, looks at the story from within. I mean, her series of books for kids, Birch Bark House, are some of the great books I think now that are out there in, in literature in, in general. And that is a perspective of an event that everybody's seen, the coming of Europeans, the difficulty native people have. And yet she shows indigenous life and those changes through their perspective, through her individual and her tribal perspective. We can offer that. Plus, plus, quite frankly, <laughs> I have to say this, native people know more about majority culture, always the majority culture knows about native people. We know who they are. We know what they do. <laughs> we actually can write about them. <laughs> and then when they try to write about us, they don't get it right. 
invariably. It's crazy. I mean, all I have to do is just look, listen, huh, what? <laughs> but they still get it wrong again and again and again and again. I cannot tell you how many things I've read just this week written by non-native people that are on native subjects that have glaring errors in them. You could drive a truck through sideways. And all they had to do was ask somebody. I mean, literally, all they had to do was ask someone. In my case, when I'm working on something that's not from my own tribal nation, I'm always referring to people who are tradition bearers, friends of mine in those nations. I'll call up a tribal nation headquarters and say, can I speak with your tribal historian? Who can you suggest to help me make sure I represent the language properly? And it's so easy to do. But unfortunately, a lot of writers who are not native haven't done that and still are not doing that. I actually do a program a lecture called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, <laughs> children's literature uh, as portrayed by native and non-native writers. And oh my gosh, <laughs> there is so much in the ugly department. <laughs> and uh, it just is so interesting that it is still like that to this day. And, uh, you know, and you, know, you go to schools and you have to be very, very careful, but also very, very honest. I mean, I went walked into a school just a year ago with my son, Jesse, and there's all the second graders wearing little paper feathered hats. And Jesse and I kind of looked at each other and said, you know, I don't think anyone should wear on their, anything on their heads right now. Let's just take those off and let's continue on with what we're going to do. But I was going, oh my gosh. <laughs> it still is happening. <laughs> so uh, again, I think that we offer a unique perspective. And this is really important to say, there are so many good young Native authors out there right now who are just appearing, like my friend Tracy Sorrell, who's a Cherokee writer. And I could start naming names and go on for a long time, but I'll just leave it at the fact that keep looking, listen to people such as Debbie Reese, who does a great job of outlining and, and highlighting really wonderful work that's out there by uh, this new generation of, of Native writers that I, I'm a big fan of. Well, fun fact, um, Louise Erdrich is from my tribe as you are probably already know. Um, but one thing I really appreciated about your retelling of um, historical figures was um, my son came home with a stack of books uh, from the Indian education program at his school. And one of the books was Crazy Horse's Vision. And um, of course he just gravitated towards that because of the pictures, the illustrations are absolutely beautiful in that, pic in that picture book. and he, he's really a reluctant reader um, and reading and writing is very hard for him. So for him to pick up a book at all is just amazing. Um, and he had me read it to him and then we read it together and then he read it by himself. And I just thought that was absolutely amazing. And then after we were reading, he's like, this is a real person. And, and so then we did some digging and I, I told him the different historical facts about Crazy Horse and that there was a monument um, in South Dakota being built. And he just thought that was absolutely amazing. Um, just because like, oh, this is a person like me and this is an actual person and this is all the stuff he did. Um, so thank you for that. Um, it's amazing to hear these stories that you grew up with and they're told by a Native American voice because it obviously, it really does show. Um, by the way, forget the illustrations, Steve Nelson, S.D. Nelson, who is Lakota himself. And when we did that book, I gave him the text and then we worked together and he made 
some really great suggestions that I followed. So our book, our book, not my book, Crazy Horses Vision, reflects that good illustration and input from uh, S.D. Nelson, who himself is a great writer. And he actually has a new book coming out about Crazy Horse and Custer. It's called Crazy Horse and Custer, Born Enemies. And it is an awesome book. I just wrote a blurb for it. <laughs> I'm gonna have to get that book because I know we have a historical society here and they had a Custer reenactment um, once like last year pre-pandemic. Um, pre and my son was like, who is that? And why is he saying all those terrible things about Indians? And I'm like, that's Custer, we don't like him. And I just like, walked right past. I was just like, I don't wanna hear this. Um, so it was just kind of funny. And my son was just like, "What? who is this person? Um, and I had to tell him, I was like, I'm, he's acting, you know, like it's, a, it's in a reenactment. And this is a person that actually really didn't think much of Native American people. And um, so it was just, kind of, it was a weird, conversation to have my with my son who was eight at the time um so I, I think I'll have to probably invest in that book and uh read that to him um I know Thomas King said one of the dangers of indigenous storytelling was that once a story was sent out into the world it couldn't be called back and because you can't control how people react to it or interpret it um can you think of a time when you shared a story that you might have that might have been interpreted differently than what you intended? And if so, did you wish for that story to be called back? Well, I think it, it's some stories we have to be very careful with because if you tell, say, a coyote story, some of the stuff that coyote or the trickster does is really highly inappropriate. And you could really offend people with some of the stuff that has been done traditionally in our trickster stories. In fact, um, sexual taboos in Western culture are very different than in our native cultures. Uh, we look at it differently, we can joke about it more freely, and we don't mind talking about things. So I haven't had occasion where I've almost told one of those stories and looked out at the audience and thought, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> and I said, let me tell you a raccoon story. <laughs> so I have, uh, I've tried not to censor myself, but to be aware of the way the story will be taken. So from the very start, I've tried to do this very carefully because I have that awareness that stories can be uh, either misinterpreted, taken the wrong way, or not the right story for that audience. But I will say this, I have learned over my life to trust the stories. The stories come to me and tell me they're ready to be told. I am just a vehicle. I don't own the story. I am just carrying the story. And my two sons are the same way. When we do storytelling programs together, we don't do a script ahead of time or, or work on things or practice in front of a mirror. We just trust the stories uh, to know us so that we will know them. That's lovely. <laughs> what? <laughs> Surprise guest. <laughs> Uh, Kelly, it's such a pleasure to see you two together and hear just this last bit. Um, Brian, let me pop in for a moment um, to express my gratitude um, that you two could have this conversation tonight. Thank you. Kelly Thanks for setting this up. Do you Kelly. know each other? Now we do. Ah, well, I'm glad that you have had this opportunity to meet. You're both lovely and you should know each other. So 
Kelly, Joseph, Joseph, Kelly. <laughs> nice. Caitlin, I popped in because I believed from having talked to you that that would be your last question, but I want to give you a moment in case you have anything else you'd like to ask Joseph. That was my last question. Um, again, I just, I feel so honored to be part of this and to be able to kind of pick your brain about writing. Um, it's, it's truly a gift to be here. So thank you. Uliuni. You know, uliuni is a cool word. It's our word for thank you. But uli means uh, good. Uni is returning. So uliuni is returning good because good has been given to you. You've given something back. So I have to say uliuni very definitely. Prior to coming here, um, I was telling my, my mother, um, I was like, I'm so nervous. I, I feel like I'm fangirling and I'm not even in the interview yet. And she had told me that you actually were out on the reservation and you, have, you had met my mother previously. And I'm just like, wow. And she's just like, he's amazing. He's so nice, so polite. Don't be nervous. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I'm also very cool, apparently. <laughs> my grandfather was a child. He read your books. <laughs> um, I would like to um, put the share screen sharing on again, Caitlin, so you can take us out of the meeting with an opportunity or an invitation to write. So um, give me one second to do that. Um, yeah, there we go. I think this is this is what we went into the the interview asking. Oh no, sorry, you're right. It is. Here we'll do a quick flip through some slides. Here we go. Sorry about that. <laughs> so considering the past, present, and future, what story would you share with younger generations to help them help influence them in the future? And what stories would you share with the younger people in your life that you think might help them? I often tell personal stories, stories of how something has happened to me. In fact, when people have told me I was not the right person to do something or I could not do it and how in spite of that, I did it. For example, at Cornell University, uh, when I first took a creative writing class, I was also the varsity heavyweight wrestler. I walked into the classroom and the teacher saw me and said, you're in the wrong place. This is a creative writing class. And uh, he kept trying me to, get me to quit the class and I refused to quit. And I kept writing and eventually he said, you know, you really are a good writer. But if I had listened to him telling me, you are not the right person to do this, you cannot do this, I would not have done it. So no matter what it is, if you believe in something, you want to do something, don't let someone else tell you you can't do it. Try, because the worst thing that can happen is that you will not succeed. But more often than not, when you try, you will find success. That's lovely, Joseph. I am so honored to have been able to listen to you and Caitlin have this conversation today. I'm really thankful for you to be here. And I wanna say um, finally that uh, Res Dogs is on its way to shelves if it's not there yet. And that um, it we didn't even talk about the fact that the book deals um, with the pandemic and as, on a reservation and people will find it timely and um, like deeply comforting, I think, and also enjoyable. So 
we would want everybody to get it. Brian, do you have a last word do you want to say before I thank um, everyone so I and say good night? You know, it's, I, I do feel like it's spiritual that, you know, I got my dog when I got it. And just hearing the story that that was told between two of you, right, Caitlin and Joseph, mm -hmm. I was like, man, this is, this is, this is special. Like dogs come and, and communicate something to us. And when Joseph told, told us that he did res dog on his cell phone while walking his dog, I was like, that's a cool, cool story. And the four points on the drum, Mm -hmm. are I think that's going to be thematic for me this summer as we start telling stories with one another in our teacher institute um, and I look forward to celebrating res dog I mean with them and saying this is a text you need to look at um, and I, I now I gotta do some research because the drum the four points on the drum I was like that is so smart and it's a great metaphor for our own writing practices so I thank you for that you're very welcome yeah and I wow. would thank you especially for saying back to all of us we have everything we need inside us to write and tell stories and we sometimes forget that especially when we work with young people and i really appreciate having heard you say that today um i want to thank you uh joseph uh, for all the work that you've put out in the world and for spending an hour with us today talking about it and i'd like to thank you caitlin for being such a wonderful interviewer and helping joseph to share this story with us in the conversation you created I'd like to thank listeners who were able to join us today and remind you that you this is um, a show of the National Writing Project. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. You can join us in the Facebook community. You can also go to nwp.org where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter so that you always know who we're going to interview next and never miss a show. Thank you, everyone. Good night. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. WP Radio.